So good morning, everybody. Thank you for making the early start. After the amount of time I spent in the military, I never thought I'd say 045 was early, but for some reason or other, it's feeling early this morning. So uh, thank you for giving me an audience to talk to um, and take you through uh, what I would say is a pretty much a brief introduction to illegal fishing and the technology it can help. It's, it's, it's going to be a bit of a whistle-stop tour. Uh, I'm going to make some fairly broad generalizations because if I get into the detail, we'll never get past each of the individual areas that we're going to talk about. But there will be time for questions, and at that stage, you can bring out anything you've got a particular interest in. Before I start, I just want to acknowledge one person that's in the room, which is Lida Hill. Uh, the project that I run, the information is on, on the tables in front of you, um, on, be, you know, on behalf of Pew. It wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for LIDA's support, and I'd just like to say a public thank you to you, LIDA. Thank you. So, I don't know what you know about illegal fishing or what you know about technology, but I'm going to give you a few facts up front. I'm glad it's absolutely nothing, because that helps me get the point across. Would you believe 26 million tons of fish go missing each year associated with activities of illegal fishing? That's the equivalent of 1,800 pounds in weight per second that fish that enters the market illegally. If you prefer it as a ratio, one in five fish that enter the market are likely to have some kind of illegal activity behind them, and that's an unacceptable level. The figure that catches my eye is the monetary figure up to $23.5 billion worth of fish enters the market illegally each year. And that's a lot of money. Now, obviously, these are estimates because nobody walks into a port with their fish and says, here's the legal stuff. Thank you very much. Oh, and by the way, here's a set of illegal things as well. So the figures are estimates, and there's a range. And there is inf information now to suggest it could be even higher than that. But I think $23.5 billion is a figure that we should keep in mind. Then take into account the fact that those fishers that do fish illegally, the worst actors in particular, are going to be involved in tax evasion, fraud, money laundering. Because if you're going to bring illegal fish into a port, you have to have the illegal paperwork to go with it. And then the worst actors, again, are linked with drug smuggling, people smuggling, and effectively slavery or bonded labor on their vessels. And then you start to wonder why it's not more newsworthy. I'm just going to play a clip. Very valuable natural resource is being just uh, handed over on a platter. Fishing in protected areas. Losing up to $220 million. Destroying local fishermen's nets. Killing one Chinese sailor. Evading arrest. Leading to diplomatic tensions. Literally out of control. This is a desperate situation. So that's a clip from a video that uh, we produced uh, in, in coalition with Interpol, the International Police, um, that are helping us solve the crimes associated with fishing. But although that's a dramatization, I don't understand why these, these points aren't made more clearly on CNN each day, because it is happening. It's just happening beyond the horizons that we normally have, i.e. the view of the sea from the beach. So... I'm a naval officer and a naval aviator. I can't help but not talk about myself a little bit. Uh, this is me 
back in uh, my days in command of HMS Monmouth, a, a frigate, 400 foot frigate, four and a half thousand tons, uh, taking some fuel from a tanker in the Arabian Gulf. Um, and it's kind of pertinent that, that few have chosen to employ a, a naval officer to, to run this campaign because although it's got a load of environmental impacts um, as a result of what's going on with illegal fishing, actually the task of ending illegal fishing is really a small military campaign. I joined the Navy when I was 17. I'll, that's 29 years ago. And immediately went into the branch of the Navy that's responsible for operating their ships and aircraft, the, the people that do the operations. So ever since the moment I walked into the doors of Dartmouth where they train the officers, it's all been about surveillance, it's all been about intelligence, and it's all been about information sharing. And whether I was sat in the back of my helicopter, looking over the horizon on behalf of my ship to look where the enemy are and give ourselves advance warning so that we can prepare for whatever we might need to do in those situations... It's the same situation with trying to find these illegal fishing. It's about looking down on the surface of the water, working out what these vessels are doing, where they are, and why, why they might be doing what they're doing. And that's been a track all the way through my career, through that as you know, commanding a warship, commanding a task group of warships. It's all been geared around information exchange. So I feel as if my experience can bring something to bear. And as I get onto the technological aspects, um, hopefully that will come, come to fruition. I mean, the other thing is, with 27 years in the Navy, I spent an awful lot of time at sea. There's not many professions that, that spend their life at sea, uh, understand the oceans, understand the water, and you have a relationship with it. Uh, there's, there's many people that study the oceans. I would challenge that there's very few of them that spend more time at sea than the navies and the coast guards of the world. So I'm sort of at one with it, and I want to make a change. And that's one of the reasons I decided to make the career change uh, at this stage in life and come and try and do something slightly different. I mean, when I was in the Navy, I spent a lot of time trying to explain why navies are important. Some of the facts and figures are fairly straightforward. 71% of the Earth's surface is water. Uh, we depend on it for transportation and goods to arrive in and out of our countries. It's a really important mass that we use in order to live our lives. Well, the ecosystem it supports is equally important. And some of these things I didn't directly realize when I was in the Navy, but as you sort of read and study to work out why we want to make the difference... Um, you start to learn these things. So 50% of the oxygen that you breathe comes courtesy of the ocean. So that's every second breath. Um, and I took a moment to try and explain to my children what, what, what Daddy was now doing now he's left the Navy and explained that I'm going to chase after illegal fishermen and stop them fishing illegally. It's important because you want to look after the sea. And did you know that 50% of the oxygen in the world is produced by the sea and every second breath you take is, is taken from the oceans? And they said, wow, that's pretty important. I said, yeah, we've got to look after the oceans. So they went away for a little while. They came back and said, we'd like to help, Dad. I'm like, that's great. What do you want to do? He said, we're going to just breathe in a little bit less every second breath. <laughs> but the oceans are under threat, and there's a lot of reports about what's happening, the scientific elements, and the scientific elements we've got to trust. If we don't believe the science and we put the science to one side, then we're only going to do ourselves damage. So it has to be science-led. So when you hear about ocean acidification and the loss of coral reefs and, and shellfish with their shells eroding due to the, the acid in the water, then you know something has to be done, and it has to be done quickly. 
There's a problem with marine debris, whether it be just the amount of plastic that ends up in the ocean now. People in the most pristine areas of the world's oceans, down in Antarctica, are finding plastic in the water, miles from shore. And that's because we're not looking after the oceans. Fishing gear gets discarded fairly regularly, whether it be vast nets. You know, they can be 10, 20 miles long that just drift. We call them ghost nets. They'll drift in the ocean and capture anything that happens to happen their way. Non, not discriminatory. We need to stop that. There's a device called a FAD, a, a fish aggregating device. This is a big floating uh, buoy or you know, structure with, with, with stuff that dangles down underneath it and fish, for their nature, want to aggregate underneath it. And that allows the fishermen to come and sweep them up in huge quantities, young fish, mature fish, reproducing fish, bycatch of turtles, sharks, you name it. It's, very not, it's not good for the way we should fish. It's not a responsible way. And then these fads are left to drift up on a desert, island, anywhere it be in the, on the planet. So we need, to, we need to make some changes. This is what we want the planet to stay like underwater. This is what we don't see day to day. And this is what we've got to try and protect. So... Finding illegal fishermen, is it this easy? If only ve every vessel that was illegal had a big sign painted on the side, it would make my job a lot easier. This is actually a vessel called the Premier, which I'm not going to talk about at this moment, but if anyone wants to raise a question in the Q&A time, I'll explain the story behind the Premier, who was caught illegally fishing um, and ended up paying a $1 million fine along with her sister ship um, in order to be able to continue her activities. So what is illegal fishing? It's, it's, it's complex. Illegal fishing can be anything from using the wrong gear to fishing in the wrong area to not fishing with a license to setting your gear in the wrong place with the wrong hooks. Um, it, it, there's a whole list of, of, of things that could be put in place as regards what the actual activity of illegal fishing are. But there's also things that the illegal fishers do in order to try and evade capture so the, I mentioned fraud to you earlier. They'll reproduce the same license for, this, for similar vessels. So they'll have two or three vessels that look exactly the same. They'll name them the same. And because there's no unique identification of fishing vessels around the world, the fishing license looks like it matches the vessel. But the fact is they've paid for one license, but three vessels are fishing off of it. These sort of things are happening quite regularly. So we have to try and prove illegal fishing, and it's, it's a, illegal, the legal effort behind trying to prove someone's fished illegally is a tough one. It, it can take months, if not years. But I think the situation is changing. The fact that we can fill a room at this time in the morning in Aspen for people to come and understand what's happening in the ocean tells me that people are more interested in the environment and the oceans. And there's a tide of change occurring at the higher levels. So only, only last week, a body called the Global Ocean Commission uh, published their report in New York um, after nearly two years' work to s provide a set of proposals that can help put our high seas back in good condition. The, uh, the commission is formed by 17 high-profile commissioners, uh, ambassadors, politicians, uh, financiers from around the world, led by three co-chairs, uh, Trevor Manuel, who is the ex-finance minister of South Africa, 
Jose Maria Figueres, who's a former president of Costa Rica, and then David Miliband, who's an up-and-coming politician likely to lead one of our parties over in the UK, led this group to look at things such as overfishing, the decline of the ecosystem, the problem of illegal fishing, and uh, the problem of governments on the high seas. The high seas are that area of sea beyond the national jurisdiction. So every country in the world owns the strip of water that goes 200 miles beyond their shores. That's called their exclusive economic zone. They own the resources in that area. Beyond that 200-mile zone, you're into the high seas, and nobody owns that. But everybody is responsible for it, but nobody is taking responsibility, and therefore we're seeing a decline. If you want to be part of this, you can go to a website, missionocean.me, missionocean.me, and the proposals are published quite clearly, and then there's an interactive where you can actually pledge your support to various ideas that they've had. I'd commend that to you. Only the week before that, Secretary of State uh, Kerry held an ocean, um, our ocean summit, where he brought 80 different countries of the world together in order to address similar problems. How are we going to act? Because it needs leadership of those countries that are responsible for these areas to act. And they formed a task force that can take things forward over the next six months, the most appropriate actions that groups of countries can do in order to start to put the problem of illegal fishing and effectively transparency in the system so that you know whatever it is you have on your plate is legal and good to eat. So there is a change underway. So let's get on to the, the more technical bit. So at this point, a bit of audience participation. If I use an abbreviation, which to me is a normal word, challenge me, and I'll explain the abbreviation, but it's kind of difficult after 27 years not to use the abbreviations. So what you're looking at here is a snapshot of the world from using a system called Automated Identification System, and we call it AIS, and I am going to say AIS from this point on. So this AIS system is fitted to the vast majority of vessels. It's fitted for purposes of safety of life at sea. It's an anti-collision system. Basically, instead of a vessel seeing another vessel on its radar as a sort of traditional blip on the screen, because some vessels are so small and they can get hidden behind various clutter on the screen, whether it be electrical interference or heavy sea states or weather, basically the electronic return will always appear. So you can take appropriate action to avoid collisions at sea. Now, this is an open system. You can actually subscribe to it on your iPhone if you want through things like ShipFinder and such like. And you can see every ship that's transmitting on AIS around the world, depending on what your subscription fee you pay, uh, you can get even more information. So what you can see here, all the red routes, if you can see at the back quite clear, the red routes are the heavy merchant traffic lanes. And then as the colors uh, decline down towards blue and white, it's the less used areas. What it shows you really is the very, very heavily mer fished merchant lanes. But if you look down at the bottom, you can see a set of tracks that come down into more unusual areas. So you've got South Georgia uh, down here, South Sandwich Islands, areas going down into the uh, Antarctic Peninsula. So it shows you that we can track vessels quite easily so long as they're compliant and they have this AIS system switched on. The problem is it's not mandatory to, for every vessel, and it's certainly not mandatory for fishing vessels, and it's not tamper-proof. You can manipulate the, the information in it quite easily. 
And it can be on purpose or accidental. Some people don't even switch it on. They just forget it's there. Others switch it on but don't really know how to work it because they haven't taken the training. So there's all sorts of information pumped out. And it's not unusual to see AIS tracks of ships in the middle of the land because someone's just failed to operate it correctly. So you can't trust all of the information. When I, when I was in command of, of my frigate, we were, we were in the Persian Gulf, and we were, we were trying to keep ourselves on our toes. Um, so we organize events fairly regularly to effectively fight a mini war with another friendly nation. For exercise, not for real. And we, we set up a situation so we were trying to find the other vessel. Warships transmit on AIS. Normally we transmit. We don't give too much detail. We normally say warship or British warship or coalition warship, but that's what people see. So if you're going to have a little battle with a friendly nation who wants to do a little bit of practice with you, to have that still on is a disadvantage. <laughs> so we tend to turn it off or manipulate it. But that gives you some problems because if you manipulate it and say you're a ferry or a fishing vessel, that information now exists openly. You're actually telling the people that piece of information. And once they look at what the track's doing, they can probably decide that this vessel isn't actually what it says. So the vessel I had was a, a stealth vessel. The radar reflection of it was the size of a fishing vessel. So we used to try and pretend to be fishing vessels. But then that meant I had to act like a fishing vessel. And I was going backwards and forwards quite a lot. That wasn't taking me where I needed to go. So eventually you have to break out of that pattern and do something more military, like head towards the enemy. And that's the moment you give yourself away. So again, if you think about it the other way around, this system isn't always perfect. If you turn it off, and then try and hide amongst other shipping, you stand out. Because you're a vessel that's got a return that hasn't got it on, and why would that be? So you bring down people who want to look at why that vessel isn't transmitting. So it's not as easy as you think, as like using this system to track vessels. Does that make sense? I'm going to show you a couple of videos to try and demonstrate how things work. I can play this a few times, and I know it's very difficult to see at the back, but I, I couldn't make it any bigger. This, this is obviously a, a chart of the world, and all that movement you see are AIS tracks provided by SpaceQuest, an AIS firm, and actually the um, NOAA, the, um, which would provide information on the boys and information they've got around the world. And what Google have done is they've taken this massive information over several weeks and I'm just going to play it again, and played it in really fast time. So this is weeks and weeks and weeks' worth of information played over a few seconds. But it shows you some patterns, and those patterns are important. And as he turns the filters up here, you can see what they've done there is make the, make the track stay visible for a little bit longer, and it shows the intensity of where operations are happening. So let's have a look in a little bit more detail. This is um, in Central America. What I want you to look at is watch for a white track coming down here, uh, which will do a very strange pattern just off of South America. And then those blue tracks that you see snaking across the screen. Does anyone, does anyone know what they are? Well, I don't either, actually. <laughs> but you can, start to make some, you, can make, you can start to make some reasonable assumptions, and I'm just trying to make it play again. So this, again, is, is played over, this is weeks of information played over seconds. And you can see the patterns. So when this guy comes over here, he stands out very clearly and allows you to sort of look at him. But what is he doing? I mean, he looks like he's heading down, and then his AIS disappears. The vessels over here are doing little twists and turns. 
Well, they're, they're one of two things. They're either fishing vessels, conducting little circles for their Poseidon gear, perhaps, or, or they may be, actually, a few of them are scientific buoys, buoys. We say buoys. And that's why they're following the ocean current. Well, the one that comes down here, I'll play it one more time, conducts a fairly clear pattern of operations. And, you know, like I say, we've, we've taken weeks of information here and played it over a few seconds. It takes weeks to compile it. This is big data. What I want to do is get the computer to recognize this immediately. So I can say to a computer system, I'm interested in finding a vessel that is conducting a survey off of wherever. This is a survey probably looking for oil and gas or maybe making charts of the sea. So they have a very regular pattern, turning 90 degrees every few miles. You can tell a computer to tell me, if you see a vessel turning 90 degrees every few miles, give me an alert. It's a pattern that we can use, and the fishing vessels have the same patterns. So that's, that's one of the things I just want you to keep in mind as we go through. Here's another video that hopefully will run. This is a video done by another nonprofit organization called SkyTruth, who again have taken SpaceQuest's AIS data and manipulated it in a different way. What they've done is overlay it and overlay it and overlay it and then shown it in a heat chart format. So all these yellow dots you see is where fishing activity has continued to happen. Now, I think this is important because it allows us to see where fishing activity is occurring or has occurred historically and therefore is likely to occur again. So if you want to send an important asset like a Coast Guard vessel or some kind of aerial drone, you don't want to send it to where the fishing vessels aren't. And this sort of information can help you predict where you might want to send it. Um, and I'm going to show you some more patterns fairly shortly. Now, I just want to reiterate that AIS, the Automated Information System, is only one system of, of, of compliant tracking. And, and like I say, it's the one that's based on safety of life. It's a, a, a compliant one in the hope that we don't have collisions at sea. The fishing vessels tend to work on a system called Vessel Monitoring System, or VMS. Now, it's the same principles, but it's a closed system. So that information is only shared between the vessel itself, the coastal state who sold the license for people to fish in their waters, and the owner or of, the com or of the vessel who's going to basically profit from the fish, and um, what we call the flag state. The flag state is the nation in the world that effectively owns the vessel. It's responsible for making sure that whatever that vessel does is legal. They are supposed to be the ones that look globally at what the vessels they've flagged has done. But we can't get access to VMS unless you're part of that equation, so this is why I'm using AIS to demonstrate some of the, some of the areas. Okay, so there's a lot of information. This, what I'm trying to apply to the system within our project is to apply military principles to what we're trying to do. So I want, I want, to, I want layers and layers and layers of information such that I can make a sensible decision about what I see. So what we've done here, this is a snapshot of a system that we're, for the moment, calling the fisheries information and, and analysis platform. And it's a big data platform with huge amounts of petabytes of data behind it so that we can get as much information into one place as we can. So just to orientate you, this is uh, West Africa, uh, obviously South America. The blue lines that you see are the economic zones that I talked about earlier. So they're 200-mile um, swathe of water where actually a vast majority of these resources reside. And therefore, it's important that the countries that own those EZs, one, protect them, and two, profit from them.
responsibly. And what we've got here, if you can see at the very back, there's a, there's a whole screen of blue dots here. That, that is one moment in time for the AIS data. Now, what I've done is started to overload data, uh, overlap data on it. We've, we've taken a fishing vessel database and told the computer about that database. And where we have a known fishing vessel, it now shows in yellow. That is a known, guaranteed fishing vessel. That doesn't mean all the blue ones aren't fishing vessels. It's just that we don't have that information yet. It doesn't exist. There is no global record of fishing vessels. So we don't know all the vessels. We know there's around 200,000 that operate very clearly on the high seas. And we know there's closer to 400,000 that are likely to be of interest to us. And then it goes into the millions of the actual number of vessels that, when you include artisanal vessels. So there's a big data problem there. So we have the database in there. It started to show us fishing vessels. And the red ones, actually, are another type of vessel that's interesting to us, a transshipment vessel. These are the vessels that meet with fishing vessels at sea, and they can transfer fuel or people or fish. And those vessels then go into port and sell the fish on behalf of the fishing vessel. So they're a key component into the, the whole piece. It's, it's a little bit... I showed you the picture of me earlier replenishing at sea to take fuel from a tanker. It's the same system for fishing vessels. And now what I've said is, show me activity that looks like fishing. So let's look in a little bit more detail. So that's the track that was in the center of the last screen. And now what you can see is he's had his AIS on, so we're kind of pleased with that. And we've, we've followed him. And, and here, we see a set of movement north and south. That's fishing activity. It's probably long lining. Long lining is where the fishing vessel basically sets a long, long line, 20 to 40 miles long hundreds and hundreds of hooks, and they set them in a straight line, wait, they let it soak, as they say in the fishing world, which is basically catch things, and then they come back down the same line and pick it back up again to take the fish. And it normally sees a very distinct pattern. So we can tell the computer to recognize that. So it's done that. It's done it in several occasions. We've also told it on this occasion to let me know if it ever turns its AIS off. And this bit here, the little orange dot, is an alert to say, this vessel has just turned its AIS off. So why are we interested in that? Well, it's fished. Very clearly it's fished, and it's kind of done it openly because it's had this system we can all track it on. Um, so there should be no problem, should be. But what's it going to do next? And that's why the alert's interested. Now we can focus our attention on that vessel and maybe set some further parameters around it. Is it going to port? Is it rendezvousing with another vessel to do a transshipment, maybe illegal? Is it on its way to an EEZ where it doesn't have a license? and it doesn't want to be seen. And these alerts, you can set these alerts to do whatever you need. So by standard, we do uh, the fishing vessel activity. We'll have it for crossing a geographic line. Maybe it's entering a maritime reserve, a marine reserve, where there is no fishing allowed. So I want to know if a vessel goes across that line. We can ask it if it slows down, because you fish at slow speed. You don't fish at 20 knots. So if it slows down, that's an indicator that they may be about to fish. Or you could ask it to tell me if it comes into close proximity, and that brings you down into the position where you, you can see this transshipment maybe about to occur. But that's a lot of data. This is happening globally. So the system is such that you can now set yourself some filters, like you would on anything you do on the computers these days. Set yourself some filters. I want to see all vessels flagged by Japan, or I want to see all vessels doing under six knots, and it helps you organize yourself. So, I mean, I've set the scene in the sense of trying to control the data, but that still doesn't solve the problem. We're, we're talking about enforcement at the moment. I'm giving you a problem. 
you're going to look at every vessel in order to find the 20% of them that are really behaving badly. That's a lot of effort to put into trying to find these bad actors. So there's other things we can do. This is, this is um, Thunder. This is a fishing vessel called Thunder. Or it actually, it's, it's uh, Coco. No, it's not. It's the Wuhan 4. It's changed its name three times. It's also changed its flag from Nigeria to Mongolia. And then at one stage, it had no flag at all, which in itself is inappropriate. You should always have a flag. And the reason it was doing that was it was trying to avoid sanctions against its illegal fishing activity. And because it's moving around the world and there's no global data system, it can move from one port to the next, change its name while it's at sea, arrive in, and the people in that port are none the wiser that this is the vessel that fished illegally somewhere else. So the system that I described earlier, this, this information platform, will hold the data on all these vessels as, as it grows, and, and therefore, hopefully, we can provide to the person in the dockside the information they need to make the decision to either let the vessel come in and trade freely, inspect it, or turn it away. And that's important, because if you can turn a vessel away for illegal fishing, and you can under UN rules and regulations, then you're costing them money, because they're now at sea with a full hold of fish, burning fuel, and having to go and find another port. And, of course, we've told the next port that they come in. So that port will turn them away. And the next port. And now they have no incentive to fish illegally because they can't make money. So it's important that we have this information sharing system. Interpol, I mentioned earlier, the international police based in Lyon, they have an intelligence system that they can share between 191 member states. That information system allows us to share information. So they now put out what are basically wanted notices. They're called purple notices. There's six uh, that have been put out since uh, Christmas. This is new information. Um, and actually, in the case of the Thunder, it's led to the vessel being apprehended. So it's now under legal questions because you can't actually just prove it uh, very clearly. But that vessel is now, is now under investigation for exactly its operations they've caught it. So I just want to give you a few examples now. A lot of people think we can solve this problem by just putting satellite on this thing. We want to, we want to just put satellites. I want to see images of vessels at sea. This isn't a fishing vessel. This is a, something we did when I was in the military. Um, we were conducting anti-piracy patrols in the Gulf of Oman and Indian Ocean. So you've got India over here. Up there is Oman. Underneath the, uh, the large black area is Somalia, which is now pretty much associated with pirate activity. This vessel, the large merchantman, put out a distress signal and then disappeared off everybody's uh, pictures. So we guessed it might be pirated, and we made some assumptions about the direction it was going to go towards Somalia, used straightforward mass, speed, times, distance to work out where it might be, and then tasked satellites to look more closely. We used a thing called synthetic aperture radar. This is just a radar picture from space, but it can do some fancy technological maths with the the distance the satellite moves, it, fake, it basically fakes the size of its antenna, which means you can get very, very accurate information on the, on, the, on, the, on the sea surface. So we got the first shot, which is the green box there. Then in a little bit more detail, you see this little spike, you know, a little reflection. There's something there. Good. So we predicted again, took another shot, and we saw it again, and now we think, yeah, we found it. And then we predicted where it was going, and it was going towards a port in Somalia known for uh, piracy, and we took a more detailed picture of that port at the appropriate time. And here you can see clearly what's going on. 
So what you can see, these smudges, there's a bit of cloud. Well, the main smudges you can see there are vessels at anchor. We know that because we've done some analysis. But the initial look, you don't, you're not entirely sure. So you send over something slightly more granular, and then you can take a photo from space. This is an electrical optical image, a photo, basically. And then depending on, again, this is expensive technology, which is why you don't want to use it uh, at any you know, willingly stage. You want to use it when you need to know this level of information. So that's an electrical optical image. And there you can see very clearly the tanker that's gone missing. We can identify it. We now know where it is. But you can tell further things. You see the little concentric rings coming out from the front of the ship, the bow of the ship? That proves it's at anchor because of the, the motion of the water against the anchor cable. So we can now confirm it's at anchor, and we know it's that vessel, and further action can be taken. And I can give you lots of other examples of pictures of things from space, but you, you see it on TV all the time, whether it be imagery from drones or imagery from space about intelligence that the military have used. But really the point I'm making here is we need to use this technology, but we need to use it in an equitable way, in a way that actually doesn't just mean we're pouring money in to get pictures of something we don't need to see. It needs to be activated in a way when we want it. So that sort of brings me to the, to the end of the sort of technological side of things. But I've also really only talked about the enforcement. As I say, chasing a small percentage of the, of the, of the problem with a lot of the assets. Actually, there is another way. If we reverse the way we use the technology, and rather using it to go and chase these people down, actually give it to them in order to prove their good behavior. If you can get them to prove their good behavior, the good actors stand out, and the bad actors stand offside. So this is starting to catch on within the supply chain. Those people who buy and sell fish, the retailers, the ones that want to put the fish on your market shelf, and you go in there and you want to know you're buying good quality, well-resourced fish. This is a German firm called Metro working with a, another German company called GS1 to provide what they call traceability based on the information that the technology can provide. And they, they're, they're at the very beginnings of a scheme that you can scan the code that's next to the fish that you're going to buy, the QR code, the sort of the box-shaped code that you often get, and it will lead you to a website that shows this data on it. At the moment, I don't, if any of you read German, help me out. But basically, it's information against the vessel, what the vessel's registry was, where it's caught it, who owns it, why, and if you go another level, it actually tells you the fishing gear you use, explains what that fishing gear is. It gives you a recipe for the, for the fish you've just bought. It, it is very open. And they give a little indication here of where it was caught. I'd, I'd just like to point out it's not that accurate. That's just a Google map pin. What it basically means it's been caught in the North Sea. And what we want to do is partner with them in order to give them that extra degree of accuracy. And we, and we can do that. So... You know, within time, within a few years, I mean, it'll take time for this to change, but you should be able to know pretty much where the vessel operated its gear, hauled the stuff in over the side, and then follow it very accurately through the supply chain, so when you do scan it in the supermarket, you can believe it, because at the moment it's, it's full of holes. But this is, this is the first system I'm aware of that does this, and it's really good to be partnering with them, and we're hoping that this is going to sort of grow through our platform onwards. So I, I refer to this as reversing the burden. So now when a vessel comes into port, you're faced with two vessels. Hello, can you identify your vessel? Can you tell me where you've been? Yes, I can. Excellent, I'll take your fish. Thank you very much. So you go to the next vessel, 
And he says, well, actually, my transponder failed. It was a really awkward day. I've lost a bit of information around here. And you say, oh, that's interesting. Does that mean you've been somewhere where you shouldn't? Because these systems don't fail on merchant ships day to day. They're 365 days a year. They rarely fail on aircraft. You have extra systems on the top of it. So there is no reason at all why fishermen can't produce this amount of information if they're put under the pressure by the supply chain to say, we will not take the fish from you if we're in doubt. You prove to me the fish is good. So the fish gets to market. There's many different types of market, but you should be able to feel more confident about what you're buying and actually be rest assured that there's a system behind it that's actually going out there to try and stop this illegal fishing, you know, stop the abuse of people at sea, start to protect our ecosystem, and actually you can feel good about buying seafood because actually the ocean provides a plentiful supply of protein if looked after properly. It should look after itself if we look after it. So with that, I'd like to go to questions, um, and I'll you know, take it into any more detail that you have. There is a microphone, so... Okay, there was one behind you, if you want to save yourself a walk. Can you identify areas that where most of the illegal fishing takes place? <clears throat> are there any particular groups that are culpable? And finally, who pays for all the services which you are describing? Uh, good question. So, first of all, there are some bad actors in the world as regards illegal fishing. Some of them are associated with those flag states I talked about. Um, it's not linear. It's kind of awkward to mention states because it's always slightly grey. That's part of the complexity of it. But the European Union, obviously I'm British, uh, working very closely with the European Union, they have a system of yellow and red card in countries that are starting to behave badly and, and therefore not looking after the ships that they are responsible for. They get a yellow card to sort of say, we're kind of concerned. You've got one year to put yourself right. And after a year, if they haven't put it right, they get a red card. And there's, there's quite a kerfuffle going on, and quite a panic going on in some nations at the moment because they're about to be red carded, Korea being one of them, one of the big fishing nations. Korea is closely in a red card from the European Union. And that will cost them 130 million euros a year, nigh on 200,000 to 200 million dollars. So... Um, that, that's the way it sort of works. It's really a government issue. It's an enforcement issue. The Coast Guards of the world, the information sharing, they can identify where these bad areas are. We, we know the bad actors. The cost of it is an interesting one. Uh, and, and really what's behind the theory in our system is government should be able to afford this. $23.5 billion goes missing. What percentage of that do we need in order to put this right? And it's not a big percentage. If you put this right and that money comes back into the economy... It's, it's, you know, at least zero gain. You know, money in, money out. It, it should not be impossible for the governments to fund appropriate support. The problem is it tends to be happening in resource-rich uh, but asset-poor countries. So 40% of the figure, approximately, that I talked about is in sub-Saharan Africa. And they don't have the assets to look after or the money, really, to put into it. So the idea behind the system we're setting up, and it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, this is a project that's looking for five to ten years, is one that an equitable transfer of information that there's, by, by contri contributing information in, you get information out. The, um, the levies of fines that go back into the appropriate place should be turned back into the system. Um, 
people that can afford it should stand up and own it. And, and that's, you know, the U.S. is very good at that. The, the work that they're doing with the task force, the work they're doing in their different management organizations. So at the moment, it's not a perfect solution. But really, the country should see or recognize the value of the resource that at the moment is ignored. Does that take it far enough for you? Hi. Um, curious thinking about the, um, what, getting into the mindset of, of, the, uh, of the illegal fishermen and trying to understand the economics in it for them. And so if you look at their risk-reward profile, what is the probability of them getting caught today? And are the penalties significant enough, or is it a slap on the wrist and they just go back to their work? Yeah, well, again, very good question and one of the big problems. So it's, describe it as low risk and high gain. It's definitely low, low risk of getting caught. I mean, the ocean's a big place. These dots are very small. To be able to monitor it appropriately is extremely difficult. Uh, vessels at sea, like coast guards or uh, naval vessels, they're few and far between. So it's extremely difficult to increase the probability of being caught out at sea. But the ports are the single point. Every fish has to come through a port. So if we focus on the ports, then we start to put some pressure on the ability for these fishermen to get the, the market to, to sea. So that, that is one big element. There's a thing called the Port State Measures Agreement. It's a UN-led agreement that basically standardizes the, the, the information ports must demand for a vessel to come in. But it needs, it, at the moment, it's sort of, patchwork. There's only a few states that have ratified it, but there's a very clear movement that over the next couple of years, a lot are going to ratify. And that will really help because the fishing can head to one port and at the moment get turned away and go to the next. But as we close them down more broadly, then they can't escape into another port. So that, that's really where we've got to sort of pinpoint that, that to, to change the probability and then add on top of this, this sort of technology when needed. The fines are interesting. I'm not an expert on the fines, but the way it works at the moment is the fines are nowhere near, generally, anything close to the percentage of the catch. So on a big Persane vessel catching a high-quality tuna, you're talking like a million dollars in the hold. And that's just an average. It, it, it goes depending on the catch. Um, but the fines rarely get to that level. And actually, they can be paid under the table, and it never even gets recorded. And one, one of the points I make to people is, actually, the transparency, your honesty in the system to have this fine, even if it was paid out of court, to have it recorded, I think, is a valuable thing, but it shows you taking responsibility. But the fines have to be higher. The, the risk against the fine is not high. Um, I mean, after the talk, there's Admiral Thad Allen here from the U.S. Coast Guard. He'd be a great person to talk about that system. He knows about it more. Or lose the vessel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, lose the vessel. But there's problems around that as well in the sense of where the vessel's then stowed and whether they can bring more vessels into port. It's, it's complicated. So the fines can get higher. There's, there was one case way back, the Bengis, who was fishing for rock lobster off of South Africa and then transporting it into America. He fished it so much, the rock, rock lobster basically disappeared, gone, all of it. The Americans and the South Africans joined forces, lots of information shared, really pioneering work. It led to a $55 million I call it a fine. There's actually a technical word for it. Um, against Mr. Bengis, and he went to prison. <laughs> yeah. But that is unusual. But it proves what happens if you do share the information. You can get to that level. And that was a cooperative agreement between the Department of Justice and South Africa. Any more questions? Hello. Yeah, uh, yeah nice presentation. Thank you. Um, 
So what would, who would be the international organization responsible for unique identifiers? I mean, we have it for mm -hmm. aircraft yep. with, I suppose, ICAO and the mm -hmm. International Civil Aviation yep. Organization. Is there no equivalent on the marine side? That's a great question. It's like I put these questions out there. There is. It's the International Maritime Organization, the UN, IMO, and they're responsible for issuing a, a, a basically an IMO number. It's, a, it's not an original name, but it is a unique identifier, and every merchant vessel in the world has to have one. It's not mandatory for fishing vessels. There's an exemption written into, into the regulation, but through campaigning with the IMO, we managed to get that exemption removed, so the loophole is now gone. Fishing vessels are now entitled to have a number if they want one, but it's not mandatory. To make it mandatory will take some time because there's another awkward organization called the UNFAO, the Fisheries and Agriculture Organization. They own the fishing vessels. The IMO owns safety at sea, and the two don't quite see eye to eye. So in order to mandate it for fishing vessels, we've got to work with the, the, this FAO group in order that they realize the value of it. And the IMO themselves are ready to do it because they can see the sense. So we're, we're tricking them. What we're doing, instead of wasting time with bureaucracy, keep fighting this kind of glacial movement of the FAO, what we've actually done is gone back around the system and started to mandate the need to have an IMO number through those organizations that manage the fish. We call them RFMOs, Regional Fisheries Management Organizations. And they have started to mandate it. For the tuna, there's, there's five big ones. Four have mandated now. The fifth, we hope, will come very soon. But if they've mandated it, then actually you circumvent the system, and we hope that the FAO will realize that uh, let's just make it a regulation, and that should happen. So, yes, there is an organization, and those numbers are vital. Uh, is, there, is there any potential for aquaculture to start to take the pressure off fisheries, reduce the incentive for illegal fishing? So the aquaculture question was one I was dreading. <laughs> I talk to my wife all the time about fish now. When I left the Navy, I was kind of happy eating fish. I didn't understand what was behind it. And now, I don't know what fish to buy and why and where because the system is not clear. So aquaculture is not my area of expertise. I'm not going to answer the question. But, but I do have Josh Reichart here, who's my vice president and, and knows this stuff inside out. Well, the problem with aquaculture... First of all, there's two kinds of aquaculture. There's aquaculture in fresh water and aquaculture in the ocean. And the, the basically marine-based aquaculture produces carnivorous fish, fish that eat other fish. And in order to feed those fish, we're still we're, we're having to, to kill two to four to five pounds of wild fish in order, to, in order to produce one pound of farm-raised fish. So for people who think that this is an alternative to just the catching of wild fish, they're, they're, they're fundamentally mistaken. It, it takes, at this point, more, more fish in the ocean to produce one fish that's raised in a net pen then is affordable for us. So it is, it's really not an alternative. The problem is, is that 40% um, of the fish now being pr produced in the world are coming from aquaculture. And to the extent that we can produce those fish in fresh water, 
where they're eating algae and plant material, um, that, that's a fundamentally good system. But we need to reduce the amount of carnivorous fish that we're, that we're producing in, in farm-raised kind of environments. Thank you, Josh. What incentivizes the markets to scan the QR code and buy the uh, legal fish versus the illegal fish? I would think that mm. the market would be driven by price, and if the legal fish were just less expensive, mm -hmm. that would satisfy them. So it, this is a really interesting question because every community is different. So what I'm learning is the U.S. is very different to Europe, and even in Europe, each place is very different. Uh, and then move east into Asia. They have a very different attitude to fish. So you can't really give a global answer, but the company that we've started to work with, Metro Group, they're a, they're a global brand. Um, they're, they're present in 32 different countries. Uh, I visited their traceability uh, operations center, as they call it, and it's big business for them because what they want to do is get some kind of market lead on their competitors. So we go through phases of, of marketing. What he feels is that they can market their fresh seafood better if they can show a quality product than they can if they, if they don't. And they recognize everybody is now considering it. That's the, that's the key. And it's a case of who can take the advantages at the right moment in order that their system gives them the advantage. So the work that Metro have done with this traceability piece, I went, I scanned the fish, and it told me all these things about the fish. It's just about making it practical for the consumer and appropriate to the consumer you're aiming it for. So I can see this working really well in the US. I mean, there's been lots of reports about the type of fish you're eating in restaurants and low-grade fish being sold for high-grade prices. As you are empowered to ask these questions, then the, the retailer has to change because you're going to make choices, and you can make choices. There are always going to be people that can't. So the UK example, the dolphin-friendly tuna was a big thing about 10 years ago. But the dolphin-friendly tuna was twice as expensive as the non-dolphin-friendly tuna. Those of us that had the money in our pocket to make the choice, we made the choice because it's a really nice choice to make. You know, I've just saved the dolphin. I'm buying this tin of tuna. But what happens then is the market starts to level out and the price of that friendly tuna starts to come down as more people sell it. They can, they can reduce the price. So that's the way you've got to think about it. There is going to be a stage of like, premium product but then it will become the norm because everybody has leveled the playing field. So it all depends on the product. It all depends on where you are. Another example, I mean, kind of strange example, shark fin. You know, these, these animals are being pulled out of the sea. The fins are being cut off. The carcass put back in the water. And these fins are selling for thousands of dollars to a market for the strangest of reasons, the wedding banquets and political dinners. No no value to the human system of eating shark fin. There's nothing in it. It was just one of these cultural things. But slowly but surely, even in China, we can see this change happening that people are now saying it won't be at the wedding banquet. So now people don't need to stock it. So there's, there's no demand, and it changes that way. So there's sort of two sort of left and right field examples, but that's, that's the way I think it will pan out. So there's, there's one over here. Great presentation, thank you. Thank you. Um, it seems like there's so many different ways that you and other organizations are attending to the issue. 
Um, oftentimes in um, business, we find that a focus on one thing and just that one thing and putting all other resources towards that one thing has um, better benefits to accomplishing the goal. If there was that one thing that you could choose, what would that be? Wow. So this is kind of awkward in front of, uh, of Josh and uh, my CEO because everybody has a slightly different view about the most appropriate way to deal with this. I think the advantage of having someone like me directing this campaign is that, that I'm, I'm not an environmentalist by background. I don't really know fish. I, I don't know that system. So I come at it with a, why can't this change? Why are you people that are responsible for protecting the fish? Why can't you do these things? So I'll give you two examples. I arrived on the campaign, and uh, Josh and I had a long conversation about IMO numbers. And, and it's very clear that this unique vessel identifier is key to the system. And, and I had some, luckily I had some insider information that the IMO was shifting in the right direction with, with the work we'd done with the Navy. And I was able to say to Josh, you know, I think we can relax on the IMO numbers. It's going to change. But when I met the fisheries people, they said there is no way any of these organizations are going to change and identify their vessels. They want this grayness. They want to be operating in these areas. But we did it. Four out of five have already done it in the space of a year. So when you put a, an argument across to them that isn't bound up in the problems of fisheries and politics, so you just give a very cognitive argument, things can change. So from my point of view, you can't take any one single factor. You have to take every element that's in that magazine Identify the vessels, track the vessels, send them into a port that's reputable. If you can do that, you've taken away like 90% of the problem because you can ask all the right questions. Then you can either enforce reducing the problem of the number of vessels that aren't complying or provide people like Metro the ability to guarantee their fish. So I don't think there is a single answer. I, I, I think you have to take a holistic look. And then add on to the things that happen in the side. People like people are recognizing the crimes associated with illegal vessels. Uh, these vessels are not regulated. So the, the, I don't know if you guys are aware of the Mumbai bombings that happened in India. They were launched from fishing vessels, fishing vessels that were not regulated. Nobody knew where they were. The, the response from the U.S. within the U.N. against other security issues were to mandate more information on fishing vessels and really... The AIS going onto fishing vessels, the larger ones, is really driven by the need for more information that's at sea. So I, you've got to pull it all together. So the single most important factor is to provide somewhere where this information can reside, and, and that's what I think I want. If I could just find a way of getting everybody to buy into the one system. Uh, thanks. Very nice presentation. Nice to hear English spoken and... I, I, call it, I call it the classic English. And, and, and that, that, of course, excludes Tony Blair. Um, <laughs> I'm interested, I would have thought your response to the last question would have been to increase public awareness, because I think there's a great level of ignorance about this problem. Mm -hmm. And that would be associated with your earlier comment concerning Somalia and piracy. Is there not a confluence between these two issues that should be, because thanks to Tom Hanks, certainly in Europe, um, the, the question of piracy is a mm -hmm. big issue. And is there not some confidence between the two systems? Right. So that's precisely where I come from, from a, as a military officer's point of view. I know very clearly, having operated there, the amount of information I had on my vessel that would have been useful to me in this role. I mean, 
The, the number of pirates in that area are low. The number of fishing vessels in that area are high. Just telling someone that those fishing vessels are there is a significant increase in their awareness of what's going on, and it doesn't happen at the moment. The US Navy and the, and the British Navy aren't a Coast Guard. They're a military force. We're not experts in, in these other areas. So what, what I'm trying to do is get the Navy from my old contacts to sort of change their perspective very slightly and start to provide information in different ways. But there's a political problem. I mean, the illegal fishing costs more globally than piracy ever has. And when you look at what was put into stopping piracy in the Gulf of Aden, there are 32 different nations, you know, as many ships. It was costing millions a day in order to reduce piracy that the companies themselves actually weren't that bothered about because they've got insurance. Their insurance rates have gone up a little bit. There was worse things that could happen to oil tankers going on the way to Britain or wherever. But nobody seems to recognize this value associated with illegal fishing. And, but, I, but I feel it's starting to change. Uh, so the African Progress Panel, hosted by Kofi Annan, in their report recently, stated illegal fishing has to end. It's a drain on our resource. We've heard about the Global Ocean Commission. We've heard about Kerry. There's more and more. It's now on the agenda, so now's the time to act. The public awareness bit is difficult because public awareness in Britain and public awareness in Britain are two different things. In America are two different things. So it has to be a very bespoke awareness campaign in whichever area you look at, and that is resource intensive. So what I want to do first is put the system in place that people can ask the right questions. So you can go to your political representatives wherever they are and tell them to act because you're interested, and that is actually where the change will happen at the moment at the higher levels. But we can't turn it into a public awareness thing just yet because I want to just prove what can happen behind it. But it will become that way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and Bob had a question as well, Josh. I think Tony hit the nail on the head. You've got to create transparency and creating a, a, a common, unique identifier for vessels out there, I think, <clears throat> solves a lot of problems. It's not only fishing. Uh, it's piracy, trafficking human beings, drug trafficking, and so forth. And uh, the AIS system that Tony talked about was only enacted at IMO following the attacks of 9-11 to create better transparency on small vessels that were not visible internationally. I don't think there's any second... Uh, priority, in my view, than to creating total transparency and unique identifiers to these vessels. Thank you. Admiral. So I'm, I'm moving around for a few minutes yet. I'm not going to dash off. If you've got any personal questions, I'm happy to take them. But really, thank you all for coming this morning.